The US is effectively sending the message that if Hezbollah enters this conflict or Iran enters this conflict, then the US military is going to be deployed directly to strike Hezbollah and in the extreme case to strike Iran. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that helps you understand US politics and foreign policy from an international perspective. I had planned today to talk about this ongoing debacle in the US House of Representatives where they still don't have a speaker and no real kind of clear idea of how they're going to get a speaker. But they have a few weeks to sort that out before a government shutdown happens. But the world does not have a few weeks to avoid what is turning into a catastrophic war in the Middle East. It's been over a week now since Hamas's despicable and deadly attack on Israel not last Saturday, but the Saturday before. The images that came out of that were some of the most shocking things I've ever seen in my life. I know that much of this imagery was going around with the war in Ukraine, particularly like when Russia first invaded and in Bukha and other places where they committed atrocities. I somehow managed, somehow I don't know how, to avoid seeing that. Most of the footage that I saw of the war in Ukraine has been this kind of, you know, apparently bloodless kind of video of our strikes on tanks and other military equipment. But the images that I saw all over Twitter, all over other social media of what Hamas did to Israeli civilians a week or so ago really, really shook me to my core. They are indeed images that recall the Holocaust. They're images that represent some of the worst atrocities that have been committed definitely in Israel in in in, in modern times. And, and, you know, that's really saying something. It's been a really kind of discombobulating and shocking event. Suddenly we're focused on the Middle East again. Suddenly we're back into these kind of cultural and intellectual debates about terrorism and anti-Semitism and the legitimate use of violence by states in response to terrorism. The atmosphere is, for me, very reminiscent of the early days of the war on terror and of the Second Intifada. I really feel like we've gone into not just a new kind of chapter in international relations, but also a new chapter in domestic politics and in domestic culture, both in the US and in Europe. Already, there's been violence in both America and Europe, you know, as a result of what's happening in the Middle East. So in the US, a Palestinian boy horrifically murdered by their landlord in Chicago. Then in Brussels, just yesterday, there was a shooting in downtown Brussels and the perpetrator said they were a member of ISIS and that they were they were responding to that attack that happened in Chicago. So definitely an uptick in the risk of terrorism and, and, and the occurrence of terrorism is going to happen in the West as a result of what's happening in the Middle East as well. Really, really big, shocking event, and we're going to be dealing with the aftermath of this for months, if not years. Because this is America Explained, I'm not going to spend too long actually talking about what happened in Israel and, and, and you know, indeed what's happening in Gaza right now, which also needs to be mentioned because, of course, there's tremendous suffering by civilians happening in Gaza right now. There's many, many questions about whether that humanitarian situation has been handled in the best way that it should. But 
like I said, because this is America Explained, I kind of see my niche here that I'm going to talk about how this affects U.S. foreign policy and, and U.S. politics. I think you all have learned a lot about what's happened in Israel and in Gaza and in the West Bank over the last week or so, and definitely the resources to explore that exist. What I want to focus on in today's episode is talking about a couple of aspects of the American response to this. So the first thing that we really need to focus on, and something that I think is kind of a subplot in much of the media coverage, although if you know how to read the tea leaves, then you can pick it out and you can see this plot unfolding. But this is to, you know, to realize that right now, the thing that worries American policymakers the most, and also I think Israeli policymakers the most, is not actually the situation in Gaza. It's the situation in the north and um, on the border with Lebanon. And it's the question of whether Hezbollah is going to enter this war as well, and whether Iran even is going to strike at Israel directly as part of this war. Overnight, there were some incredibly ominous warnings that were released by the Iranian foreign minister, where he basically said that Iran and Hezbollah, Hezbollah of course is, you know, basically a, a tool of Iranian foreign policy. It has some of its own interests, it has some of its own agency, but it's, it's very responsive to Iranian foreign policy demands. So, you know, it's, if Iran orders Hezbollah into this war, then Hezbollah is going to enter this war. The Iranian foreign minister said overnight that Iran or Hezbollah may take preemptive action against Israel in a matter of hours. And both Iran and Hezbollah are saying that they will enter this war if an Israeli ground offensive in Gaza commences. And of course, we know that that ground offensive is going to commence. So right now, there's a tremendous focus on, is this going to become a wider regional war? It's important to understand that whereas Hamas is certainly no ragtag militia, they are a very effective fighting force, as you know, as well as been a bunch of terrorists. You know, they are skilled at small unit combat, they're skilled at urban combat, they're skilled at surviving in that urban environment. But Hezbollah makes Hamas look like a bunch of Boy Scouts in terms of military capability. Hezbollah fought Israel to an effective standstill in 2006, nearly 20 years ago, and they have only massively expanded their technological capabilities and their military capabilities in that time. So if a war between Israel and Hezbollah happens, it's going to get incredibly nasty incredibly quickly, as of course also is the offensive in Gaza. This is why Israel is taking its time right now. That's why we don't already see that ground offensive in Gaza, because the Israeli government is preparing itself to potentially fight a war on two fronts. And much of the American response has also been colored by this potential for the war to escalate. So you've probably seen that the US has dispatched two aircraft carriers to the region. Those aircraft carriers give US policymakers a range of different options in this situation. One of them is that the aircraft carriers can be used to shoot down incoming ballistic missiles that are targeted at Israel, perhaps from Iran, perhaps also long-range missiles from Hezbollah. But also the US has, has moved a large amount of combat power into the area. So there's a big, big dance of deterrence going on right now, where the US is trying to signal, and, and you've actually heard Biden say this on a whole bunch of different occasions, that if Iran and Hezbollah enter this war, they are going to be subject to massive US firepower. Now, this is that's why if the war spreads to include Hezbollah and Lebanon, it's going to get so, so nasty. Beirut is going to be 
massively hit by airstrikes. Um, many, many people are going to die. Civilians are going to die. Soldiers are going to die. You know, Hezbollah members are going to die. And so the US really, really wants to stop this from escalating and it really wants to stop from, from having to fight Iran directly. Now, one interesting thing that's happened under the Biden administration is that the Biden administration has actually become more solicitous of the Israeli idea of a joint attack on Iran than even the Trump administration was. So earlier this year, Israel and the US carried out joint exercises where they basically practiced how they would carry out military strikes on Iran in the event of a crisis or in the event of them feeling the need to strike Iran's nuclear program. So those plans are there. The political will for it is seemingly there. And, you know, the US and Israel are not going to preemptively attack Iran, but I would rule nothing out if Hezbollah enters this conflict. And there's already been fairly significant skirmishes occurring on the Lebanon border. There's already been skirmishes occurring on the US, sorry, the Israeli border with Syria. Israel has already struck targets within Syria. So, there's a really big chance of this spreading and the Gaza ground operation is going to be harrowing and destructive enough. But if this spreads, it's going to be so, so much worse. Another really kind of important and notable aspect of the US response is just how unapologetically and completely Biden has backed Israel and backed Netanyahu. And you've seen a tremendous kind of um, recognition of this in Israel, that basically across the political spectrum, there's a tremendous love for Joe Biden right now. There's this feeling that he has stepped up and given Israel complete unconditional support at this time. And it's true that Biden seems to have done that, you know, and I, I recorded an episode several years ago now, I think. You can go back and look it up if you want. It's called Are Democrats Anti-Israel? where I talked about how public opinion among Democrats and opinion among Democratic Party elites has been becoming steadily kind of less enamored of Israel and more pro-Palestinian over the last decade or so. And I think that had there been a younger Democratic president right now, you know, if it had been Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or someone like that, you would have seen a different and less full-throated um, defense of Israel and, and kind of, you know, unapologetic backing of Israel than you are seeing from Biden right now. Now, on the other hand, Biden and other people in the administration have started to send some public signals about certain matters. So they've been talking a lot about the need to minimize harm to civilians within Gaza. They've been pushing Israel to turn back on the supply of humanitarian goods and water to Gaza. They've even said, so Biden said publicly, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that Israel should not permanently reoccupy Gaza, that this is not a solution to the problem. And they're also pushing Israel behind the scenes to come up with an exit strategy. Right now, the Israeli government is just so focused on, on the need to get rid of Hamas, to destroy Hamas's rule over the Gaza Strip, and destroy Hamas as an organization. But the US is stepping in and saying, you know, hey, that's how we felt after 9-11, and that's what led us to these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And look how that turned out. That didn't really ultimately turn out very well for us. You know, the Taliban is now back in control of Afghanistan. The war in Iraq 
you know, was instrumental in the rise of ISIS. So the U.S. is trying to counsel Israel to, to slow down a little bit, to actually think about what are the political goals that they're trying to achieve here, and how can they best use their military power in this coming ground offensive to achieve those political goals without causing unnecessary suffering to civilians and without just creating this kind of chaotic vacuum of power within Gaza. So you see, you know, you're starting to see a bit of nuance come out of the Biden administration. And I think that, you know, like as this war continues and when Israel eventually goes into Gaza, it's going to be horrific. There's going to be really, really big civilian casualties. There's going to be big casualties among the IDF. There's going to be a lot of destruction to to civilian property within Gaza. And you will start to see more and more calls for de-escalation from the Democratic Party. You will start to see more and more concern about what is happening in Gaza as the shock of that initial, you know, terrorist attack on Israel fades. Then the focus will switch more and more, like one month, two months, three months from now. And you might then see more pressure on Biden to start, you know, hedging, to start questioning Israel. Israel to start pushing for certain things that Israel might not want to do. So those trends are definitely going to unfold over time. But right now, we're in this moment of enormous solidarity towards Israel, you know, both from the US and from Western governments. Also, just to say a little bit about what this means for US politics and kind of intellectual life. So I mentioned at the beginning that this is really reminiscent for me of the War on Terror. So the War on Terror began in 2001, and it basically coincided with the Second Intifada, which was the last really, really major um, military campaign that Palestinians waged against Israel and, and saw many, many Israeli responses. And so this was a tremendous, you know, a period of tremendous violence in the Middle East, in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Still fewer Israelis died in the entire Second Intifada between 2000 and 2005 than died on that single day last Saturday, which is a shocking and enormous statistic. But more people died in Israel on that one day than in the entire Second Intifada. And I think that the Palestinian death toll is already nearly as high as it was in the Second Intifada, or it's going to get there soon anyway. And so, you know, that period of 2001 to 2005, this was a, a period of tremendous debate in the West about terrorism, about the relationship of liberalism and democracy to terrorism, and how liberalism and, and, and democracy should respond to terrorism. And I see those debates coming up again already. I see particularly that on certain parts of the very, very far left and kind of the, you know, what sometimes characterizes the anti-imperial left, although I object to that a little bit because I think that everybody on the left is is anti-imperialist, but on what calls itself the anti-imperialist left, you are seeing some reactions to this situation, which I find very, very troubling, right? You know, you've seen in New York City, there was a march where there seemed to be speakers who were basically welcoming this violence against Israel. Some of the responses that you saw in the early hours of the attack were basically to welcome this attack on Israel, to see it as a good thing that that, that Palestinians were fighting back. Now, as someone who completely supports the idea of Palestinian statehood, I completely support the idea of Palestinians having their national aspirations fulfilled. And I've also been very critical of the Netanyahu government over the last five years or so. That's something I've talked about on this podcast. It's something that I've written about. 
The Netanyahu government allowed the far-right, most extremist elements of Israeli society to basically take the reins of policy, to hugely expand settlements in the West Bank, to massively increase the oppression of the Palestinians. But none of this should be used as a reason to see Hamas as the good guys, or to give Hamas any credence whatsoever. Hamas is a genocidal organization. It's dedicated to the murder of every single last Jew in Israel. It is one of the biggest threats to the meeting of Palestinian national aspirations. You know, what Hamas just did over a week ago has done more to set back the Palestinian cause than almost any event that I can think of. If the idea of a Palestinian state already seemed very distant, this sets it back by generations. It does nothing to, to help Palestinian live a good life, to live a safe life, or to achieve their aspirations. But you do see already in the West, some people like to stand up for Hamas or they defend Hamas. And I think that that's unfortunate because it represents a very, very, very small portion of Western opinion and of opinion on the left. But the significance of the, the small groups and individuals who are saying this gets blown massively out of proportion by the right and it becomes grist for this domestic culture war. You've already seen that some right-wing media figures are trying to link the Democratic Party to support for Hamas. And so I think that you're going to see a really, frankly, kind of stupid debate play out in the coming months where people will, on the right, will try to claim that the left supports Hamas and that the left is in favor of anti-Semitism and the murder of Jews and all these kinds of things. And that's a dumb place for politics to be. I remember this from the war on terror. This taking of nuanced opinions, like I would consider myself to have a nuanced opinion on this, that I both completely reject Hamas, but I also am very concerned about the condition of Palestinian civilians. But that kind of nuance immediately gets collapsed. And as soon as you criticize any aspects of what Israel does, you get accused of been basically pro-Hamas, right? And and this is a this is an old thing. It's been going on for a long time, and we're going to see more of it. Another aspect of this, and I guess this will be the final thing that, that I'll talk about, is that there's been on the side of Republicans, one of their initial responses to this was to see it as a huge opportunity to attack Biden and try to turn this into a really partisan issue. So Ronna McDaniel, who's the chair of the RNC, so that's kind of, you know, the RNC is the institutional Republican Party, like the thing that does the fundraising and organizes the debates. She actually went on TV and said that this attack is, quote, a great opportunity to criticize Democrats. You cannot imagine a more cynical response to one of the worst outbreaks of anti-Semitic violence since the Holocaust to say that. And Republican presidential candidates have, you know, they agree with her. They've been jumping right in there. They've been blaming Biden. They've been saying he was weak somehow in his policy towards Iran and that enabled this to happen. And that, you know, the US isn't isn't respected. So that's why Hamas attacked Israel. And there's no evidence for this, right? I mean, I think the idea that Hamas chooses what it will do based on US 
policy somewhere else in the world is is completely stupid, you know? And it's also the case, like I said earlier, that actually the Biden administration has been more and more open to joint planning and joint discussions about potential military strikes on Iran, which I think would have been a really bad idea, but that's something that they've been talking about more than previous administrations. But the, the sheer partisan cynicism here is really immense, and it just kind of shows how Republicans are not, they're not a serious party anymore, right? I mean, that you, when something like this happens, you need to rally around the president. I mean, after 9-11, it's not like prominent Democrats came out and said, well, this is all George W. Bush's fault because, you know, he said he wanted to um, downsize our presence in the Middle East and focus on China, and he let this happen. I mean, you know, some twisted logic, you could say that, but Democrats didn't say that, and it shouldn't be the case that Republicans say that now, especially when, you know, their antics has done so much to undermine the Biden administration's readiness for a regional war. Many, many key military positions in the US Central Command, that's the US Military Command that's responsible for the Middle East, are not filled right now because Republicans have been refusing to let the military promote the officers that they want and to put those officers into their posts until the Pentagon changes its policy on helping service members receive abortions. There's no US ambassador to Israel right now, again, because Republicans have been blocking the Biden administration from appointing ambassadors. There's also no ambassador in Lebanon. There's no ambassador in Egypt. So I think it's really difficult that the, the, the Biden administration has to now deal with what might be a major regional war with essentially half a hand tied behind its back and with no expectation of a good faith discussion or good faith support from Republicans in this unfolding regional crisis. Okay, so those are just, those are some aspects of the situation right now that bear on US foreign policy and politics. Of course, I'm going to be talking about this again in future episodes. Please also check out the America Explained newsletter. You can find a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And I publish about two posts a week in the newsletter. So you'll get much more kind of, you know, um, more quick and, and, and up-to-date coverage in the newsletter than you get on these bi-weekly podcasts. So please consider checking out the newsletter as well. Thanks so much for listening to America Explained. I really hope, you've, hope that you found this informative and interesting, and I'll catch you next time a couple of weeks from now. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.